There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police the arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder. Unsolved cases can keep many up late at night trying to find every detail possible. Some of those details seem too strange to believe. On February 22, 1968, a woman was killed, and the reason for her death contains a strange detail that would also pertain to two other women. All strangers, but all experiencing their time of the month. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On February 23, 1968, the citizens of Glasgow, Scotland, woke up to the news that the naked body of 25-year-old auxiliary nurse Patricia Docker had been found in the doorway of a locked-up garage only yards away from her home in Langside Place, having been murdered the night before her discovery. She was identified by the ambulance men who transferred her body and recognized the married mother of one as an employee at the Mernskirk Hospital. Her body, in addition to showing signs of extensive blunt force trauma, indicated that she had fought for her life in her final moments before being strangled to death with a ligature that investigators thought might be the assailant's belt. Patricia's clothing was never found, and her purse and watch were both missing from the scene, but would later be found by search units. The purse was recovered from a nearby river cart, and the watch from a pool of water near where her body was located. Immediately upon finding the young woman's body, investigators put boots on the ground and began going door to door to ask if anyone saw or heard anything nefarious the night of the murder. One witness claimed to have heard a female shout, leave me alone on February 22nd. But other than this statement, there was very little in the way of evidence that could help solve Patricia's case. According to Patricia's parents, the young mother, whom was estranged from her husband, had informed her parents that evening that she was going to go spend the evening dancing at the Majestic Ballroom near Hope Street, but for reasons unknown, instead opted to spend her time at the Barrowland Ballroom, likely to attend their over 25s night that the venue hosted each Thursday, the location where she likely met the man who took her life. When she failed to return home that evening, her parents just assumed she spent the night with a friend. With Patricia's case heading towards cold, on Saturday, August 16, 1969, a 32-year-old mother of three made the same deadly decision and made her way to the Barrowland Ballroom to spend the evening away. Jamima McDonald was no stranger to the venue. And as per her family custom, her sister took over with the children and Jamima was on her way. As the clock drew close to midnight, Jamima was seen in the company of a young, well-dressed and well-spoken man described as slim, between six foot and six foot two, and between the ages of 25 and 35. A man with short, dark brown hair, light streaks, and who occasionally quoted Bible verses in a distinctive Glaswegian accent. They were seen walking in the direction of Jamima's home at approximately 1240 in the morning. The next day, Jamima's sister woke and expressed concern that her sister had not returned home the night before. As she sat with her worry, she started to hear rumors swirl around the neighborhood that a group of children had been seen leaving a derelict building, claiming they had just found a body. In her gut, she knew something was amiss and, the following Monday, was worried enough to take a walk to that building and see for herself if her wild speculation had any weight. 
there, she discovered the battered body of her own sister, lying face down with her shoe and stocking thrown beside her. When police arrived at the scene and post-mortem examinations concluded, it was determined that Jemima had been both beaten and raped, had most of her attacks centered on her face, and, like Patricia, had been strangled to death in her final moments, this time with her own stockings. She had been murdered approximately 30 hours before her body was found by her sister. Now, the M.O. used to kill both Patricia and Jemima was not the only similarity between these two victims. It seemed that both women, at the time of their murders, had been menstruating. Still not considering their murders to be definitively connected, police went door-to-door yet again and yet again were told by witnesses that they heard a scream the night that Jemima attended the Barrowland Ballroom. They also started working under the suspicion that, whoever the killer was, he was no stranger to the area and had enough geographical knowledge to know where to go to find victims and where to hide their bodies. However, none of the attendees at the ballroom recognized the man seen with Jemima, and in an area where everyone seemed to know everyone, they realized that it was unlikely he lived in the neighborhood. They did, however, have enough statements to, for the first time in Scottish murder investigation history, create a composite sketch that was widely distributed, both in print and on television, of the man whom Jemima was last seen with the night of her murder. They also set up both female and male undercover officers at the Barrowland Ballroom in hopes that the man would come back for another dance. But in October of 1969, the search was called off due to lack of producing suspects. In addition, the detectives were blamed for the decrease in attendance and the financial hardships experienced by the ballroom. As both Patricia and Jemima's case started to collect dust in the police station, on October 31st, 1969, the same month the undercover operations were halted, a man walking his dog discovered the body of 29-year-old Helen Puddock stashed behind a tenement in the Scottsdale district of Glasgow. Her body, found beside a drain pipe in the back garden of her Earl Street flat, was partially nude, extensively beaten, raped, and strangled to death with her own stockings. Her purse, like the other women, had been taken from the scene, but the contents had been spilled all around her. Grass stains found on the soles of Helen's feet indicated that she put up one hell of a fight, and at one point had attempted to scale a nearby railway embankment to try and get away from her attacker. Her upper right thigh bore a deep bite mark, and the killer placed her sanitary towel beneath one of her arms, leading police to assume that she and the other women may have been killed for their refusal to engage in intercourse due to their periods. Her story, when told, was all too familiar to detectives. Helen, on the evening before her murder, had attended a dance at the Barrowland Ballroom with her sister, Jean Langford. There, the women met two men named John, one a resident of Castle Milk, and the other keeping his details a little more private. After being with the two men for more than an hour, the sisters and their new friends left the ballroom to head home. The John whom Jean had grown fond of, the one from Castle Milk, walked to George Square and boarded a bus, while the sisters and the more private John, whom Helen had been dancing with, waited for a taxi. The trio went off towards Glasgow Cross and headed westward to Jean's home in Knightswood. There, she got out of the taxi, leaving Helen alone with the man she had just met as the taxi took off in the direction of her home in Scotston. 
While she knew very little about the actual identity of her sister's dance partner turned probable murderer, Jean's testimony about the conversations they shared in the cab would provide most of the crucial information regarding the killer's psychological profile. She said that John had been a teetotaler who continually inserted Bible verses into their regular conversation, even referring to the Barrowland Ballroom as an adulterous den of iniquity and showing disdain for the married women who attended the dances. As the trio entered the taxi, Jean became increasingly aware that this man saw her presence as an inconvenience and explained that his abstinence from alcohol was due to his being conditioned to do so by his strict upbringing. She described him as slim, well-dressed with reddish or fair hair between the ages of 25 and 30 and about 5 foot 10 inches tall and with very distinctive overlapping front teeth. A man who had given his name as either John Templeton, John Simpleson, or John Emerson, she wasn't quite sure, and spoke in a polite and intellectual manner. He smoked embassy cigarettes, mentioned his familiarity with drinking establishments in the Yorker district of Glasgow, and mentioned working in a laboratory. However, it should be noted that bouncers at the Bearland dismissed much of Jean's description, claiming the man in Helen's company had been a short, well-spoken man with black hair. Regardless, police knew that the last potential witnesses had to be both the taxi driver and the conductor of a night service bus who noticed a young man matching Jean's description boarding a bus at the junction of Dumbarton Road and Gray Street on October 31st at around 2 a.m. He looked disheveled, had mud stains on his jacket, and a red mark across his cheek. This man, who would later be given the name Bible John, was never seen again. Despite his identity still remaining a mystery, the murder of Helen Puddock left no room to deny that the women were all killed by the same man. The similarities were far too much to discount this time around. Composite sketches were broadcast for the world to see. Dentists were interviewed far and wide about his distinctive teeth, and due to his hair being unfashionably short for the time period, over 450 hairdressers were questioned and shown the sketch in hopes that they recognized a client. Nothing of worth came out of these questions, nor did any of the over 100 detectives placed on the case find any information of worth. And though there was a list of about 5,000 potential suspects, with Jean attending well over 300 identity parades, no arrests were ever made. After one of the most extensive manhunts in Scottish history, the cases of Patricia Docker, Jemima McDonald, and Helen Puddock remain cold and Bible John never killed again. Now, depending on who you speak to, the reason for this is either that he was imprisoned for an unrelated crime just after Helen's murder, or placed in a mental hospital, died before he could be brought in for questioning, or simply moved away from Glasgow and brought his murderous rampage with him. Others, however, believed the police knew who the suspect was, but never had enough evidence to earn his arrest, which means that there are more than enough potential suspects who, for one reason or another, were never definitively connected to the crimes of Bible John. We will talk about a few of them. First, there was a man referred to as John White, whom former Detective Chief Inspector Les Brown gave details on and believed was the likely perpetrator of the murders. According to Les, the man was seen arguing with a young woman at the Barrowland Ballroom immediately prior to his arrest and closely resembled the composite sketch created by the witness. 
Unfortunately, there was one notable difference that knocked him straight out of the suspect pool in the eyes of investigators. He lacked those distinctive overlapping teeth that Jean swore her sister's killer had. Despite all of this and the fact that he provided false information to the police when questioned, he was released. Several years later, Les Brown spoke with a detective who had taken John White to the hospital after arresting him outside the ballroom, who said that, despite the fact that he needed stitches following the altercation, as soon as the handcuffs were off his wrists, he escaped from the hospital after giving hospital staff the false name of John White, an action that seems uncommon for an innocent man. Another suspect was a man named John Irvin McGinnis, whose body was exhumed by the Strathclyde police in 1996 so they could extract DNA to compare to the semen samples found on the stockings of Helen Puddick. John had, prior to his suicide in 1980, served in the Scots Guards and was the cousin of one of the original suspects in the Bible John murders. The test results came back as inconclusive, with then-Lord Advocate stating that there was insufficient evidence to link John McGuinness to the murder of Helen Puddick. He was officially cleared by the Crown in July of 1996. Now, the next suspect is one that I won't go into too much detail about because he is a subject of a future episode, but is one that, in the eyes of many, is the man responsible for the Bible John murders. Peter Tobin, who was convicted in May of 2007 for the murder of Angelica Cluck, had relocated from Shuttleston, Glasgow to England in 1969 after marrying a woman whom he met at the Barrowland Ballroom, a move he made just after the murder of Helen Puddock. In total, Peter would take the lives of three other young women in a series of murders that, according to criminologists, were not the work of an amateur. He, of course, bore a striking resemblance to the composite sketches created for Bible John, and one of his former wives gave testimony that he had held her prisoner, beat her, and raped her for an extended period of time. According to her, he was driven to extreme violence by the female menstrual cycle. He was also a staunch Roman Catholic with very strong religious views, and often used the alias of John Semple. The criminologist who actively investigated Peter Tobin's other crimes, David Wilson, strongly believes that Peter and Bible John are one in the same. He said that the moment he knew this to be true came during Peter's trial for a 1991 murder when an acquaintance of his victim gave evidence of a conversation heard between Peter and the victim that bore a striking similarity to the testimonies given by Jean Langford. Both men mentioned that they did not like to drink, and that he had a cousin who scored a hole-in-one in a golf match. David Wilson would later state, quote, I didn't set out to prove Tobin was Bible John, but I would stake my professional reputation on it. Although DNA has been used to clear several suspects, detectives state that obtaining a forensic link between Peter Tobin and Bible John is unlikely due to the deterioration of physical samples and poor storage. An investigation named Operation Anagram was initiated in 2006 to trace the movements of Peter Tobin throughout the decades before his arrest, and as a result, found a woman who said she was raped by Peter after meeting him at the Barrowland Ballroom in 1968, shortly after the murder of Patricia Docker. Another said she was threatened by Peter at the ballroom, and when shown photos of him at the time of the murders, said, quote, he was the man who came up to me so many years ago in the Barrowlands. 
I am 100% certain that Tobin is Bible John. In 2010, at the age of 74, Jean Langford, the sole witness to have engaged in conversation with Bible John, passed away. Prior to her death, she dismissed the theory that Peter Tobin and Bible John were one in the same. While many agree that Bible John was, while still unidentified, an active serial killer, others claim police jumped to conclusions when connecting all three murders. Some say that the 18-month gap between the first two murders is unusual for a serial killer, and say that the other murders, that of Jemima and Helen, were possibly copycats. In 1983, an anonymous individual contacted the Strathclyde police and claimed to know conclusively that his friend was Bible John, and that both he and his friend frequented the Bearland Ballroom in the 1960s. The anonymous source said that, after reading an article in the Evening Times, he had the sudden and horrifying realization that his friend was the killer. The suspect was traced to the Netherlands, where he was living with his wife. Nothing more was ever heard from the anonymous source or the supposed suspect. In 2004, police announced their intention to genetically test a number of men to try and, once and for all, find Bible John's identity. This announcement came after an 80% genetic match from the semen samples found in Helen's case and the DNA sample found at the scene of a minor crime committed two years earlier, leading to the theory that the man who committed the offense may be a relative of Bible John's. Nothing more has come from this announcement. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on February 23rd. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.